How about this? Um, what the world needs now, come on, sing it with me, is love, sweet love. That's all I know. But you can. Very good. All I knew was that first line, but uh, thank you for covering for me. But hey, as we begin this morning, let me ask you a question. Can you imagine what our world would be like if everybody loved more? Let's say, you know, pick a number, maybe 50% more than where they're at right now. You know, so everybody's somewhere on the scale of how much they love. Let's say everybody from wherever they're at just loved 50% more than what they do currently. I mean, you love your neighbors, your, your husband, your wife, your children, your parents, your friends, your coworkers, your, I mean, the strangers you meet, everybody. You love everybody 50% more than you do right now. What would our world look like? If that happened, what, what if that happened, you know, to all those sitting down at the United Nations? What if that happened over in the Middle East where people don't, you know, predominantly don't believe at all the way we believe? What if somehow God allowed them or they just on their own chose to love everybody around them 50% more than they currently do? What would our world look like if something like that started to happen and transpire? Can you imagine the difference it would make? I mean, I doubt any of us could find, I mean, they probably exist, but it would be very hard in my mind to find, to imagine finding somebody who would say, whoa, 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 stop, no, we don't need that, that song's crazy, we don't need more of people sticking together and loving one another and treating others the way they want to be treated or thinking more highly of other people than their own self, we don't need that. I mean, maybe that person exists, but I would think that would be a hard person to find. But let's think about this for a minute. I mean, if universally we would agree that that song is true and that the world needs more love, then why is there so little love in our world? Why is it such a delinquent thing in our world? Well, let me tell you three facts. First of all, I would tell you this. It is a universal need. If you're filling in the blanks, here you go. It is a universal need. I have never met a person on the planet who does not need love. From the moment you came into this world, you needed love. You needed, you know, somebody to hold you and feed you and keep you warm and nurse you, all those things. And as you get older, you still need love. You're looking for someone who will look you in the eye and tell you, you matter to me. I care about you. And even if you make mistakes, I forgive you because I love you. We're all in that boat. Everybody desperately is looking for and needing love. But fact number two is there's a universal solution to the universal need. You see, God loves all people everywhere and longs to meet the deepest needs of our heart. He longs to heal and protect and guide and forgive and be in relationship with all of us. That's what he wants so badly I mean, on the one hand, you have this universal need, people in desperate desire of love, and on the other hand, you have this omnipresent, all-wise, sovereign, godly, amazing, 
person who wants to be in relationship with us. And yet, the third fact is that there's a tragic disconnection, a, a universal disconnect. We have this unbelievable need and this supernatural unlimited availability, and yet, nevertheless, most people remain lost without love, dying for love, starving for love. Can I give you a word picture? I want you to try to use your imagination and think about this with me. So imagine all the people of the whole world at one place at one time. They've somehow gathered on this massive land mass, 7.7 billion people as I understand um, currently in our world approximately. So you've got everybody from North America and South America and let's see, Asia and Africa and Australia and Europe and even those four or five people on Antarctica. You know, there's not many. One of them was just here. Where is he at? He just got back. He was on the south, at the South Pole uh, just a short time ago. But anyway, so um, you've got all 7.7 billion people together. They're at this one place, this massive land mass. And before them, supernaturally, because God has orchestrated this, you have this ocean of love, of, of liquid love. All the water in the world. I mean, every ocean and sea and river and and stream and lake, everything's all come together. God has done this amazing miracle and put all this water together. Now, there's no more salt or pollution or dirtiness in the water. It's holy, perfect, beautiful, um, life-giving. It is liquid love. It's what the world needs, and it's all right there in front of this mass of humanity. And yet there are many that will not experience that. And let me tell you three reasons why. First of all, uh, number one would be that there are those who don't know that God loves them. There are some people who have never seen that ocean. They live in the desert. They, they literally are back here somewhere. Maybe it's a hundred yards or maybe it's a mile, whatever. But they're back here at the back of the pack. And there's an ocean up there, but they don't know it. They've not seen it. They're unaware. Nobody's told them. I mean, it's not far it's just a short walk, but they don't know that it's there. And so they are literally starving and, and parched and, and truly going to die of thirst at some point because they're unaware of this life-giving ocean that is before them that they need so desperately. Now, there are others. There's a second group, those who do know that it's there. It's right there. Here's the, here's the shoreline. It's right there. They know it's there, but they've never tasted it. They've never put their foot in it. They've never gotten in it at all. They don't know what it's really like. They have never received it. They desperately need someone to share this, this with them. They, they need somebody to come and, and scoop up a little bit in a cup and say, this is for you. Or here, take my hand. Come on, let, we're going to get in together. This is for you. And yet they, they, that's never happened. And so they don't know. They've never actually been, it, been in it. They've seen it, but they don't know what it's like. You see, they just desperately need, I guess, permission, or they need an invitation. And none of the people who really know what it's like and understand the fullness of it or, or know what it's for and who it's for, none of those have ever said, yeah, it's for you too. Come on. And so they just stand and look at it. Then there's the third group. These are people that have received God's love but they don't know how to experience it or embrace it, at least not on a regular or daily basis. See, there are countless people that have tasted it and found how amazing it is. They might have even jumped in. They've been immersed in it, 
And yet, even though they know it's incredible, life-giving, and wonderful, they tend to be people that get in and, wow, that's awesome, but then climb back out. And as they get back out of it, you know, over time, they start to dry out, their hair dries. That happens quicker for some than others. Um, their swimsuit dries, and, and they begin to be parched, thirsty, longing again. Oh, I long for that, but they hesitate. Maybe it's because, because they think, well, you know, if you get in that water, I mean, it's great. It's wonderful. Look at all those people, those smiling faces. That's great. But if I get in there, probably gonna, there are going to be requirements that I don't know that I really want to, to live up to or deal with. I'm not sure I'm comfortable with it. And they're skeptical about whether or not it's worth it. There are others who are like, well, no, I'm sure it's great, it's worth it, but it's just, it's not for me. I don't deserve that. All you people, you, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what's behind me in terms of my track record and the things that I've, the mistakes I've made. And so I, I, don't, I don't deserve that. And they've been told otherwise. And they've experienced it. But they, they tend to lean on their own understanding rather than on the Lord's, as we are told to do. And so, so they hesitate. But once in a while, something happens. Maybe somebody down here on the, at the beginning on the edge of the water splashes them. They're like, oh, man, that is good. You know, or they just get so parched and they're, you know, that cotton mouth. They're so dying of thirst that they can't help it. And so they go ahead and get a little bit. Or they go in just... Oh, that feels good. Oh, yeah, my feet were on fire on that sand, but that feels good. But they hesitate to go all the way in, so they get back out. They got enough to sustain life again for another day or month or year, but, but not enough to really be where God wants them to be. And they stay mostly on the seashore looking at it, going, wow, that's great. I remember when I, yeah, but... But they look at all you smiling faces and they hesitate to join you for reasons that really are not legitimate. They des just desperately need somebody to help them. Or they need to just trust the Holy Spirit in their life and learn and understand that it is for them. And that nothing can separate them from God's love. You know, and, and that, that they, are, they are invited and eligible, and all the above, and just get over that hump that they are struggling with. I would say this is a decent picture of the universal need, the universal solution, and the tragic disconnect. I, I'm 52 years old. I know I don't look a day over 51, but I'm 52 years old, and uh, I, I've been a pastor for about 30 years. I, I've been a Christian almost 40, over 40 years, actually, and I grew up in a wonderful, godly home with wonderful parents. Not perfect, but wonderful in so many ways. And I learned about God's love from an early age. That's why I accepted Him as my Savior at age 10. I, after high school, I went to Manhattan Christian College and graduated there. Learned a lot about God while there. You know, I got a four-year degree in just the short five years that it took me to do so. And it was a wonderful experience. And from there, I went to a little town in Oklahoma, uh, that's not much bigger than our whole church family, and uh, loved and enjoyed my time there in the panhandle working with those people. But I tell you what, and I've been in Colorado now for about 26 years, but um, I've, I would say really it's probably only been the last five or 10 years of my life 
that I've really begun to grasp more of who God really is in my life in terms of how high and wide and deep and long His love really is. I've heard about it and known it all my life, but I haven't really understood it as fully as I should. And I, I still don't, I guess, but, but uh, I've learned a lot in the last five or ten years in particular. And um, in fact, it, at this point, if somebody really asked me to boil it down and asked me, uh, you know, some big question like, Scott, okay, after all your years in ministry, what do you think the most central or most key aspect of, rela- of relationship with the Lord is? What What's the most important piece to all of that? I would say, I think the most profound and most important part to all of that is simply understanding that God loves me no matter what. Absolutely no matter what. Irrespective of what I have done, who I am, what's behind me, He loves me no matter what. Now, performance or, you know, or decisions and actions and choices still matter. Don't misunderstand me. Jesus did say, if you love me, you will obey me. And James said, faith without works is dead. And there's lots of scripture that would point to the importance of of our choices and our actions and all of that. But the most profound thing I've learned over the years is that God truly loves me or loves all of us no matter what. There's nothing more beautiful or amazing or powerful than the love of God. Nothing. In fact, it's beyond words. We can talk about it, and that's what I'm trying to do today, but it is beyond vocabulary. We cannot fully grasp or understand or articulate how great His love is. But John, who in some respects would, I guess, be considered Jesus' BFF, his closest friend on earth when he was here, John talked about it some and did his best in human language to explain some of it. Here's some of what he said. In 1 John chapter 3, he said, how great, he didn't have a perfect word, but that's the best he could come up with. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us. I love that. How, that he has poured on us or heaped on us or showered on us. How great it is that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are, children of God. Let me ask you a question. How many of you are parents? How many parents do we have in the room? Come on, raise your hands, all right. How many of you love your children more than you really know how to put into words? Okay, some of the parents didn't raise their hand. I don't know what that means. I'll have to talk later, but anyway. But okay, and then how about this? How many of you who just raised your hands would say, you know what, in fact, I love them so much, it's really kind of hard for me to imagine a scenario in which I would love them more. I can't hardly imagine that. I love them more than I, as much as I think I possibly could. Okay, most of you. Well, God loves you like that times infinity. More than you can possibly imagine or or understand in terms of how much you love somebody else, assuming maybe your child or your spouse is that person that you love the most on this earth. God loves you that much times infinity, so much more than you can imagine. He is almighty God. He is creator. He's not a human who loves another human with somewhat certain kind of ulterior motives or, you know, based on reciprocity or any of that. He loves you in a way that is beyond human understanding. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us. Now, some people might sit there and go, yeah, let's turn that around and ask that as a question. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us? How great is it? Well, 
to answer that kind of question, John goes on in the next, book, or next chapter of his book, 1 John chapter 4. He said he loves us so much that he put his money where his mouth is. I mean, he put it into action, and he talked about that. He said God showed us, showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. I mean, similar to John 3.16, but I mean, this is John's desire to show us and help us understand how incredible God's love is for us. And he goes on to say, this is real love. Not that we have loved God. I mean, that's wonderful. It's a great thing that we love God, but that's limited. The real love is this, that God has loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. That's the most amazing picture of it there is. And John says, oh, I just wish you could understand and fully grasp that. But it's beyond us, as Paul explains, as we'll see in a moment. Paul, though, did say in Romans 5, but God shows. Again, it's an action. He doesn't just talk about love. He showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And just a couple of verses before that, he talked about the perfect time. That the perfect time to sin Jesus was while we were yet sinners. That's an amazing. That's an astounding and staggering, not while we were at our best, but when we were at our worst, he said, that's the perfect time. I'm going to demonstrate my love and show them by sending Jesus, my one and only son, to die for them. I I don't, there is no better way. To the question that Paul asks in verse 35 of the famous and amazing, beautiful chapter of Romans chapter 8, Paul asks this question first. He says, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? I mean, trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. When you name it, what, what shall separate us? Can anything? He then answers his own question in verse 37. He says, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. I wish we could talk more about that. Through him who loved us. For I am convinced that, and then he just basically lists everything he can think of. I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels, nor demons, the present, nor the future, nor any power, that leaves out nothing, any power, neither height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, that is such an incredibly beautiful way to describe it, and yet it still falls short, because we can't really grasp it. Language can't really articulate it. God said, Uh, Jeremiah recorded God to say in in chapter 31 of his writing, he said, I have loved you with an everlasting love. An everlasting love. Think about that. That might bring to mind uh, another verse that talks about everlasting. You've probably heard it before. In fact, I just mentioned it. I want you to, to let it really soak in, though. This is from the New King James Version when God's Word tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever or whosoever believes in Him will not perish but have, and there's the word, everlasting life. Everlasting life through His everlasting love. Let's look at just that verse for a minute. Um, It's familiar. It's probably the most famous verse in all the Bible. John 3.16, and I want you to think about it as we kind of look at little pieces of it and look for four characteristics of God's love. First of all, it is a giving love, as this verse says. Say this verse, with just the first part of it with me, and instead of making it more generic, which is still beautiful, 
by using the word the world. Let's change it to your name. So insert your own name in the beginning of that. For God so loved, let's do it again. For God so loved Scott that he what? Gave. He gave. God doesn't just talk about loving you. He doesn't just feel love for you. He gave. He gives based on His love for you. It's an action. It's not just a thought or a feeling. John goes on to say in um, chapter 3, he says, Dear children, in talking about our response to this, he says, Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. And he can say that because he's saying, let's follow the example of our Lord who, who did that exactly for us. As we just read, what? That God showed us how much He loved us, how much does He love us? How did He show it? By sending His one and only Son. Could He have loved any better? Is it possible? It's a giving love. It's also, secondly, it's a sacrificial love. Again, for God, say it with me, for God so loved that He gave His what? Only, his one and only, or in some versions, his only begotten, which just means his one and only. His one and only. There's a really cool story in 2 Samuel chapter 24. Um, David, the king, who is a man who was very flawed, uh, a favorite character for many people because he's somebody we can identify with because he really messed up at times. But he also really uh, became humble and repentant and he, in fact, was called a man after God's own heart. Well, anyway, at one point, David wanted to worship God and build an altar and make, an, make a sacrifice to Almighty God. And he found the perfect place in his mind to do so on the land of a man named Aruna. And so he came to him and he said, here's what I want to do. I want to worship God in this place right here on your land. Um, tell me how much it's going to cost and I'll buy this from you. And, and Aruna said, oh, no, no, you're the king. What's mine is yours. Take it, whatever you want. Have whatever you want, any of my other things and the land itself, it's all yours. And I love David's response. He said, no. The king replied to Aruna, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. You see, David saw value in sacrifice. And so does God because he knows how we will often be skeptical otherwise. So God, God's love is sacrificial to the nth degree in that he gave all that he could give. What more could he give? Is it possible to have given more? The answer is no. It cost him everything. He did not give out of his abundance. His one son out of 7.7 .7 billion other options or his one out of three or four or whatever. No, he gave his one and only son. How many of you, again, are parents? How many of you love your kid, like, more than you know how to express? How many of you can imagine loving somebody else that you would sacrifice your son and, or, or daughter and let them be killed for the sake of somebody else? How many? Not me either. I mean, I love you, but not that much. just honest, you know, but, uh, and, and yet God loves us that much, and yet we often take it for granted, and yeah, yeah, well, it's, and whatever, something comes to mind in a way that we under, 
or, or we underestimate or undervalue that. It is an incredibly sacrificial love. Thirdly, from John 3.16, we see it is an unconditional love. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that what? Whosoever or whoever believes will not perish. Whosoever believes. Um, how many of you know what a governor is on a, on a vehicle that slows the motor down? You know what I'm talking about? I was talking to somebody yesterday at our, uh, um, uh, our thing. What? Campfire, campfire gang. It was awesome. The Bear Paw and the others did. It was wonderful. Father-son or father-daughter thing. I was talking to one of the guys, and he was telling me about his motorcycle, uh, Joe Morgan. And he was telling me about his motorcycle that has a governor, I think, set at 150 to keep him from going what it can do, which is close to 200. I'm like, oh, my word. If I owned that, I'd need it set at about 15 probably to keep me safe. But, but anyway, so you understand the concept. That's what it does. It slows you down. It won't let it go to beyond a certain I mean, it has the capacity, but it says no. It stops you here. How many of you have, just be honest, how many of you have at some point in some way had some kind of a limiter or governor in terms of your love to display towards somebody else? You have hesitated to love somebody else. You've known that they need and that you could probably meet that need, but you're like, you know, no, not today. Maybe because they caught you at a bad time. Maybe you were tired or exhausted from a long day. Or maybe you're literally physically sick, so you're like, oh, I just... I know they need, but I just, not today, I just can't. Or, or maybe you're in a bad mood. Maybe you're just feeling extra selfish. You know, if you just got to be blunt and, and honest, you have to admit that. Or maybe it's, the truth is, they just kind of annoy you. They get under your skin. You're like, well, I hope that, hey, you, you know what you need to do? You need to go to the church and talk to one of the pastors, you know, or something like that. Because that person just kind of gets under your skin and You've limited how much you love. Well, let me ask you how, many are you, how many of you are glad that God doesn't have a governor on his love for you and I? Is anybody in the room thankful that God never, ever gets annoyed? He never gets frustrated. He never gets sick and tired of. He loves us without limit. It is unconditional. It is agape love. That's the Greek word, if you don't know it. Um, in English, we say love for a whole bunch of different types of things, like it's not really the same when you say I love ice cream as when you say I love my child, right? It's not really the same, but we use the same word because that's just all, that's all we have in our, in our English language. But in Greek, there were a bunch of words, and God's word for what he has for us is not the same kind of thing that we might use in other ways. It is an unconditional love. It is agape love, not to be confused, therefore, with phileia, which is like brotherly love, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, or, or pragma, the pragmatic or logical love, like, hey, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. We've got a, an agreement, that kind of love. Or, or eros, where we get the word erotic. Everybody knows what kind of love we're talking about there. Or, or storge, which is beautiful. That's the kind of love that you would have between a, a child and a parent. These are beautiful distinctions that are great, but God says none of that's good enough. My love is agape. It is unconditional. It is beyond any of those. And that's what he has for you and I. It's an amazing thing. But fourthly, we can see also in John three sixteen, it is an everlasting love. So that no one should perish, but have everlasting life. You know, God is everlasting, so he can give us everlasting love if he wants to, but he doesn't have to. None of us are everlasting. We are finite. He's infinite, but we are finite. In fact, Isaiah chapter 40 tells us all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. 
In the New Testament, James kind of echoes that thought. He says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. But not so with Almighty God. Look at what the psalmist says in chapter 90 of that book. It says, before the mountains were brought forth, or you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Wow. I mean, he has no beginning, no end. That's not true of anything else that we've ever known to exist. Not anything. Everything has a beginning. Everything has an end, but not God. He is he has been there from everlasting to everlasting. And Isaiah, again, back to chapter 40, says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary, and his understanding is unsearchable. His love is beyond measure, beyond words. It's an incredible thought. Jeremiah said again, or quoted God to say, I've loved you with an everlasting love. This whole series that we've been looking at is based on what A.W. Tozer once wrote, a great theologian. He said, what you think about God, what comes to your mind when you first think about God is the most important thing about you. So we've been looking at all these characteristics of who God is, that He is good, that He is sovereign, what that means, that He is holy, that He is, um, uh, that he is wise, that He is just, and all these are incredibly important and beautiful. We need to know them. We need to understand them. We need to trust these attributes of who God is because it affects the way we look at everything in life. But I think more than anything else, the most important piece is we need to know that God is love. And receive that. Embrace that. Trust that. He madly, truly, deeply loves us almost to the point that we could say it's a reckless kind of love. It's not, but it is in the sense that, that He would leave the 99 to come and find the one, that He would love you so much that He would love you with an irrational kind of love that doesn't really make sense, but He does it anyway. We're going to close by worshiping God with a beautiful song, but first I want to lead us in a beautiful prayer, not... Not something I originated, but something the Apostle Paul prayed over the Ephesian Christians. And I want to pray it over you. But before we do, if anyone has never, I just want to say, if nobody, if somebody in here has never had God melt their heart or been open to letting God melt their heart with His incredible love, and, and even though you are limited and you can't fully grasp how incredible it is, if you've never had that happen, I want to pray that God would touch you in a way that is different than anything you've ever experienced before and melt your heart in a good way and help you know that that sea of, of beautiful, life-giving ocean of love is there for you. There are others of you that have been there and you've done this before and you might have even oh, yeah, gotten in and taken a drink. Yeah, that's good. But you're back here on the shoreline and you are parched and you're thirsty and the sun is baking your skin and your feet are on fire from touching that hot sand and you desperately need to get back in, but you're hesitating. And I want to just encourage you or ask the Holy Spirit to lay upon your heart that He is begging you to come to Him, inviting you to come to Him. 
Let me read it for you. We'll talk about it, and then I just want to let it be a prayer. But let me read it for you first. The Bible says, for this reason, Paul said this, for this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his, holy, his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And I pray out of his glorious riches that he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I love that. So look at that on the screen there. You know, your inner being and your heart. In other words, it's not just an intellectual thing. It's beyond that. It's in the depths of who you are. And he says, I, I pray that it, he will dwell. And the original Greek word for that means a permanent residence. He'll take up a permanent residence in your heart through faith. And he goes on to say, and I pray that you being rooted and established in love. In other words, rooted like a big strong tree and established like a solid foundation of a building. In other words, you're already there. You know it. You've experienced it. But I want more for you. I want you to go beyond that. May you have the power together with all the saints to grasp. And he's going to talk about in just a moment how, how we can't really fully understand. But he wants us to grasp and strain and try with the Holy Spirit's help to begin to fathom and to grow in an understanding of how great, how wide and long and high and deep the love of Christ really is. And to know this love, and here it is, that surpasses knowledge. In other words, that is beyond anything we can understand. It's like trying to explain a literal ocean, you know, the Atlantic Ocean to a person who's never seen it before. You can tell them about it, but until they're there and they feel the sand between their toes as the water comes and goes and, and waves are pushing and moving them and they smell it and feel it and hear the seagulls and the sound of the, the waves. They can't really know until they're there. Anyway, he says it's a love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all God's fullness. I love how he says those four words, wide, long, high, and deep. You know, it's wide enough for all the variances of people, not just people that look like you and me. For all those who have committed all the sins that you think, well, God's love's probably not wide enough for that. Oh, yes, it is. It's long enough to wait for us. God, unlike you and I, never runs out of patience. He's waiting for you. He will continue to wait for you. As long as you're breathing, He's waiting for you. And it's high and deep. It's as high as the heights of our celebrations, as deep as the deepest discouragement. His love, and eventually heaven, is greater than the greatest high this earth has ever seen. You know, whatever drug or anything else there is no such thing as a high like God's love for us. And it's deeper than the deepest, darkest depths of despair. The deepest, darkest hurt or hang-up or habit that you might be struggling with or that feels like it's pulling you down, sucking you down. No, God's love is deeper. And he closes by saying to now, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power, that is, at work with us, within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Will you stand with me? Let me just actually pray this prayer over you. And then we're going to sing together. And I encourage you to come and if God is moving in your heart to respond, to respond. He says, for this reason I kneel before the Father 
from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever and ever. And everybody said...